Is pediatric hypertension underdiagnosed? What we know and what we still need to know. You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special series on children's health. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, your host, and with me today is Dr. David Kelber. Dr. Kelber is an attending physician in internal medicine and pediatrics at Harvard's Brigham and Women's, Boston Children's, and Massachusetts General Hospitals. He is also the Assistant Residency Program Director for Massachusetts General's Medicine and Pediatrics Program. Dr. Kelber also has a PhD in Biomedical Engineering and comes to us today from his office in Boston. David, thanks for being with us today. Today we are going to be talking about what we know about pediatric hypertension and what we still need to know. Dave, maybe before we uh, start out, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you came to this topic? Sure. So this is a topic I'd say I sort of stumbled upon in my clinical practice several years ago when I was medical director for a pediatric weight management program. So this was a referral clinic for children who had weight problems. And in the course of my practice there, it was not uncommon. So probably one or two times a week, I would have a child that was referred to me And as part of the first visit, what I would do is look very carefully at all the information we had about the child within our electronic medical record system. And as I said, about once or twice a week, I would discover that the child really had blood pressures that indicated that they were hypertensive. But then on more careful examination, really would have discovered that no other clinician would have figured out that the blood pressures showed that the child was hypertensive. And did that surprise you based on, well, you you trained in pediatrics not that long ago. Did you have appropriate education in that regard, would you say? I think I did to some extent. I think one of the, the bigger picture issues with pediatric hypertension is it's very much of a silent disease in children. So I think from my pediatric training, there isn't a lot of emphasis either on the diagnosis or certainly the the management and treatment of hypertension. I guess I'd say that's in comparison as a med-peds physician, certainly on the, the adult side in my internal medicine training, you know, hypertension is sort of bread and butter of being an internist. Sure. Well, when you were being trained, did you see kids in an inpatient setting with hypertension? Is that very common? In my residency training, and even in my, my practice here where I do a little bit of inpatient work, I think I can remember one instance where I've I've really seen a patient, a child hospitalized with hypertension. What do we know from previous work in the field? Is it like adults? Is it mostly essential hypertension? How about secondary hypertension? So what we know about this, there's a couple of things. One is that just like in adults, the overwhelming majority of hypertension in children is essential or primary hypertension. In other words, you know, even when we investigate, we can't figure out the cause. Having said that, we do know that the the prevalence, although it's very difficult to get get our hands around these numbers, the prevalence of secondary hypertension is slightly higher in children than in adults. So this is, I think, very important when we think about the the underdiagnosis of pediatric hypertension because it really points to the idea that because there is a higher prevalence of secondary hypertension, we really need to identify those children with hypertension so we can do a workup and see if we can identify that secondary cause. What kinds of things have you seen or at least have been reported in literature as sort of typical secondary causes? The one that's slightly different, in particularly different in children versus adults, would be kidney disease, sort of primary kidney disease leading to a secondary hypertension in children. Uh, certainly you can have uh, cardiac disease, coarctation, you know, probably we sort of top on that list. 
and then you know there are, there are hormone problems, endocrinological problems, like there could be in adults as well. Are residents trained to be aggressive about looking for secondary causes of hypertension? I know in the adult world, if you're not successful with treatment, you start looking at renal artery stenosis, uh, things along those lines. Do you take the same paradigm with kids? I would say that really the answer is no, at least sort of in my own experience, in my own training. And I think the idea that there's so much underdiagnosis really points to that because if you if you don't really think a disease exists in your population, you wouldn't really be focused on, you know, sort of what's the workup or what's the, the management of the disease, you know, here in terms of looking at secondary causes. We mentioned at the uh, top here that you've got some background that's a little different from many physicians that is in biomedical engineering. And I know you've done a lot of work in medical informatics. How did that play into your interest in um, doing a study? So once I sort of discovered that there was this underdiagnosis in my overweight population, the next sort of natural question in my own mind was, I had made this observation sort of in a, in a special population, really just on anecdotal observation. And so it really made me think about, you know, one, why is this the case? Why is there this underdiagnosis in these children? And then two, you know, is there any way really to try to figure out how widespread this problem is of underdiagnosis? So in, in my mind, then, this sort of coupled nicely with my interest in informatics because I really, my hypothesis from the beginning was that the reason it's not diagnosed is really an information processing issue on the part of physicians. And there's really sort of two aspects to that. One, uh, as you may be aware, is that in, in pediatrics, there are literally hundreds of normal and abnormal blood pressure ranges because normal and abnormal blood pressures in children are defined based on the child's age, their gender, and their height, or really their height percentile. There's still the four categories of sort of normal, prehypertensive, stage one, and stage two, but there are all these different ranges, you know, sort of absolute numbers based on the, the characteristics of the child. So the idea here is, I mean, even as a board-certified pediatrician myself, I mean, I can't remember all the hundreds of different numbers. So presumably, one approach would be to say that, you know, we've got to have tables, and the tables exist, and so every time you see a blood pressure in a child, you need to look it up on a table. My hypothesis, again, even knowing my own practice prior to, to figuring this out, is you know I didn't do that on a regular basis. Welcome to a special series on children's health on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, and I'm speaking with Dr. David Kelber, and we're discussing pediatric hypertension, what we know and what we still need to know. So, David, you were talking about the tables, your ability to maybe easily remember or access them and thinking that that might be an issue. And and so where did that take you? That's part of the sort of the information processing challenge, as I saw it. The other piece to that, then, is to make the diagnosis, you really need three abnormal values, not taken at the same visit, but taken at different visits. And so then there's the information processing problem of, well, we've got to be able to find previous blood pressures that were taken you know, on this child. And so, you know, how easy are those to find? And then knowing that, you know, certainly the child's age and height would probably be different at those other times. And so, therefore, the, the normal ranges for those other blood pressures would be different than the one, say, at the, at the current visit. From my standpoint, for a computer to remember and do these things would be trivial. So, so as an example, for a computer to remember the, the hundreds or even if there were thousands or millions of normal and abnormal blood pressure ranges is a trivial process if it's programmed correctly. 
Similarly, for the computer to be able to go back in a robust electronic medical record and sort of find wherever it might be, find other blood pressures, and then figure out if those other blood pressures were normal and abnormal, again, if it's programmed correctly, are really trivial tasks. Is that a new approach to, it sounds like you're describing a, a relatively different way of doing retrospective studies. Have people taken that approach before? Is this relatively new in our business? I think sort of one of the, the fascinating things about the approach that I used was that the system where the study was done when I was in, in Cleveland had a fully integrated electronic medical record. It was the uh, Epicare system. And what this allowed you to do is all the clinical information was in the system. So blood pressure values, diagnoses, past medical history, family history. And so, you know, it allowed us easy access to all of that information. And I think one of the things to think about is until you have a really fully integrated electronic medical record where all of your clinical care is in the electronic medical record, i.e. you really have a paperless office, this type of study, you know, could not be done. So in that sense, I think it it opens up really a whole new potential for the types of studies that could be done as electronic medical records proliferate more and more. Mm -hmm. Are there any implications for this in terms of, let's say, manpower necessary to do a study, budget necessary to do a study compared to maybe the way it's been done in the past? Sure. Well, well, one of the things, and we're actually reporting on this at the American Academy of Pediatrics this coming fall, is that this study was done by myself and two medical school students who I worked with in, it's a little hard to quantify for sure, but probably in one or 200 hours worth of work total and we had no budget for this study. So we we hypothesized that the equivalent study in a paper-based world would have cost several hundred thousand dollars and taken thousands of hours to do. And, And the key here is that most of that sort of money and most of the time and energy would have been spent on the data collection, where with the electronic medical system that we use, there really was no data collection. Sort of, you know, what I say is, you know, in a sense, I was sort of employing all of the pediatricians in my healthcare system for seven years for the study, although they didn't know they were being employed. You know, we weren't paying them at all for this. They were just collecting this data as the the routine part of normal clinical care. So it sounds like in addition to what we've all heard about the advantages of electronic uh, medical information systems, uh, research will benefit, uh, certainly retrospective studies will benefit from more widespread employment of those systems as well. Is, is that your feeling about that? Definitely. And it's been, I'm, I'm presenting this on the American Academy of Pediatrics, is if you look at where I started on this, being the medical director of the Pediatric Weight Management Program, the idea is, you know, I just saw a couple of clinical cases. You know, I saw a couple of patients and it sparked in me a clinical question. And I think in, in a more traditional paper-based world, you know, that would probably be it. You know, I sort of, well, you know, maybe in other overweight patients I see, I'll see, you know, if I continue to see this issue of hypertension, and probably for my own practice then, I would get better at diagnosing hypertension. But now with an electronic medical record, which this study demonstrates, with just a little bit of extra time, not even money, a little bit of extra time, you can really dramatically expand on that and say, hey, you know, what about other people that I practice with? Is, you know, am I anomalous in sort of figuring this out? Or what about my peers? What about our whole health system? And again, I think what the study demonstrates is that with just a little bit of extra effort, you can really 
take your clinical observation and see in a large population if it's reproducible. That is fascinating stuff. L- let me ask you this. You, you have a lot of contact with medical students or residents besides your peers. Do you share that observation with them? Are they receptive to uh, the future of retrospective studies in this, in this fashion? I think so, definitely. I think you know, one of the fascinating things about medical informatics as a field is, is that medical informatics will revolutionize medicine in the future and in all sorts of different ways, from patient safety to clinical research to probably other areas that we haven't really thought about. But I think what's really important where this plays into medical education is is that, in general, medical informatics is totally left out of medical school curriculum. I think one of the challenges to think about how do we build in these very important principles of medical practice and sort of tools of medical practice into medical school curriculum. I want to thank Dr. David Kelber, who has been our guest. We've been talking about hypertension in the pediatric population, what we know and what we still need to know. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn. You've been listening to a special series on children's health on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For questions and comments, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thanks for listening.